You are listening to the To and Out CFL Podcast, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. But those two were touchdowns, and I just think it's like, as I say in the book, he went from hero to legend that day. Grab some poutine and a double-double. It's time for the To and Out CFL Podcast. Now they have to kick it out, and they do! Every week, Travis Cura. Does anybody still care about this podcast? And Brazilian Tide. Hunters are people, too. Talk fantasy football, bring you the latest in CFL news, and sprinkle in a little bit of nonsense. Are you kidding? This is unbelievable! Ready, set, Of course, we are a part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm Travis Cura. Brazilian Thai has the week off. This episode of Two and Out is brought to you by the Business Council of Alberta. Have you ever wondered what it takes to create a good life in an equally good society? One where people, business, and the environment can flourish? Alberta Better, a podcast by the Business Council of Alberta, is on a journey to understand what it takes to create a good life in Alberta and how we, as Albertans, businesses, and governments can shape our society so everyone prospers. Find new episodes of Alberta Better on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen at businesscouncilab.com slash Alberta Better Podcast. That's businesscouncilab.com slash Alberta Better Podcast. New episodes drop every other Tuesday. I'm looking forward to this episode of To and Out. Paul Woods, the author of The Year of the Rocket. John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, a crooked tycoon in the craziest season in football history is on the show. Of course, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the 1991 Grey Cup. And Paul's been working on this book for over four years. The Sutherland House Publishing Company is putting this out. Now, you can pre-order your copy now. It's coming out September 1st. You can check out at Sutherland Books on Twitter. They got the links there. It's very easy to pre-order there. You're going to save 20% if you do it right now. I'm also going to put the link uh, to pre-order up on our website, toandout.ca. Pre-order your copy of The Year of the Rocket. In the meantime, let's go back in time with Paul Woods. And uh, joining the show now is Paul Woods, a journalist, Canadian football historian, and author of Bouncing Back from National Joke to Grey Cup Champs. Obviously, that was about the Argos of 83, but he's got another book coming out September 1st about the Argos of 91. Thank you so much for joining the show, Paul. Well, thanks for having me, Travis. Nice to be here. I would, uh, I just want to ask you, first of all, what's your... uh, relationship with the canadian football league i can tell by your zoom background that uh, it, it, it runs deep yeah i'm surrounded here by by 1991 vintage argo stuff just uh, sort of helped me get psyched up for the project i've been an argo fan since i was a kid uh i became a huge fan in the er- the very first leo cahill era the 19 late 1960s i uh, became a huge argo fan my dad was an argo fan and i fell in love with the team about 1968 or so uh became a really serious dedicated fan uh, in 1977 not quite sure why but i just decided if i'm going to be a fan i'm going to be as diehard and determined and, and dedicated as possible so i've been following them very closely ever since 
Uh, I worked for my whole adult life, starting really starting in 1980 as a, as a journalist, uh, and I got to cover them a little bit, like from time to time. But I wasn't; I was mostly an editor, not a reporter. Um, but I got exposed to them a few times along the way, uh, including some memorable things. I was at the '96 Grey Cup, uh, got to go into the Largo locker room afterwards and interview players. That was a blast. But so I've been following the team very closely. Uh, and when I uh, when I left my my most long term job at Canadian Press in uh, 2011, um, I had some time on my hands and I was still feeling pretty young and vigorous. And uh, one day I I got the idea. You know, I've always wanted to read a book about the '83 Argonauts, uh, who many of your listeners will know. You know, they broke a 31 year drought. They hadn't won the Grey Cup since '52, and they finally won it in '83. And I was a huge fan. I was a season ticket holder of those early 80s Argos. And I thought, somebody's got to write a book about them. No one's ever going to do it, so I'll do it. So I, I set out to do it. I interviewed, you know, 40, 50 people, uh, put together the story, Bouncing Back, that you mentioned. Uh, and it was a hell of a lot of fun. It was a great, great fun to sort of do a long-form reporting to really dig deep into a story. And it was a three-year story arc in that case, really 81 through 83 uh, and so I did it, and uh, the book was very well received. I was very pleased with how it came out. Uh, I think it did justice to the story. Uh, and so uh, a few years ago, when I when I left another job, I thought, you know, now's the time to uh, to tackle the next project, which is the '91 Argos, which to me is the most incredible season in the history of Argonaut football. They've been around almost 150 years. Um, they'll be 150 years, I think, next year. Would, would be their, that'll be their 150th year of, since, they first, since there was first football played under the name Toronto Argonauts. Um, and 91 is the most crazy, magical, electrifying season of them all. You had John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, Bruce McNall. Wow. They outbid the NFL for Rocket Ismail, the coldest Grey Cup of all time, Matt Dunnigan's heroics in the Grey Cup. The stories are endless that year. And so I set about to do it. It took me four and a half years. It was a lot of work. It was a much deeper and bigger project than the 83 book. Uh, more interviews, twice, well, more than twice as many interviews and uh, lots, lots more research to do for this. So I started at the beginning of 2017. And now, uh, within a couple of weeks, the book's finally going to be out. It's going to be, a, it's available now for pre-order, but it's, it's going to be on bookshelves in on September the 1st. And uh, I, I hope I did justice to an amazing story. I'd like to think I did. I guess uh, the, the readers will be the judge of that. But it was a hell of a lot of fun. There's millions of stories from that era and it was my honor and, and, and pleasure to be able to sort of tell it in a, what I hope is a coherent, entertaining way. Before we really dig into that team, I'm curious, how do you balance or how has the transition been from fan to covering the league? It's your job to being a fan or being both at the same time or at different times. How do you balance all of that? Well, you know, it's a challenge. And, I, and I'm, in a way, I was always kind of glad that I wasn't a full-time reporter or a full-time sports reporter because I, did, I didn't want to lose the, the, yeah. the joy of being a fan, right? And so, I mean, I, I, covered, I covered the Calgary Stampeders for two years, from 86 to 88. I was, I was based in Calgary, and I was a full-time reporter for those two years. And one of my jobs for the, for the Canadian press, the wire service, was to cover Stampeders games. So I covered, I was up in the press box from Man Stadium for all the games those years. Uh, and there were a couple of games with the Argos. Obviously, they came to town at once a year. And so I had to, had to set aside my, my, my fan, you know, take off the fan hat and cover it as a, as a journalist would. Um, 
but I always secretly was cheering for the Argos yeah. to win, right? Uh, but I wrote the story based on how the game went. I never forget the 80, the game in 86 at McMahon Stadium. I think the Argos gave up 13 sacks. Conrad Holloway just got battered by the Stampeder defense. So that's what I had to write. I mean, it, it wasn't yeah. going to write. It was a great performance by the Argos. It wasn't, right? But, but I mean, I also had, some, I also had some, some moments where it was very tempting to sort of, uh, you know, break through the wall. I, I, my, my favorite story about that, Travis, is that uh, – I was by 1996. I was I was a I was a manager in the in the Canadian Press newsroom. I was the bureau chief for Toronto, uh, but I was also everybody knew I was a, a former sports reporter and a former and a big Argo fan. The Argos got to the Grey Cup in '96 in Hamilton, and I was added to the CP coverage team. There were we we back in those days they would send four or five reporters to the game. Uh, with different assignments, you know, somebody's going to cover the one, the one team, somebody's going to cover the other team, somebody's going to write the main game story and so on. And my, my job was to basically go and, and write what they called a droomer, a dressing room story about the Argos after the game. Uh, so I got to watch the game from the press box, which was a blast. And as we all remember, that was one of the greatest Grey Cups of all time. The snow was coming down and it was, you know, 43 to 37 final score. It was the, 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 the crazy catch by Eddie Brown and Gizmo had a, had a punt return touchdown. And, you know, there were just so many amazing moments. There was the, the famous non-fumble or fumble by Flutie, depending on whose side you're on. So with about 10 minutes left in the game, I'm up in the box, up in the press box, and, and somebody comes into the, into the box and says, okay, everybody that's going into the locker rooms, you got to come downstairs right now. And so a bunch of journalists, including me, we all sort of trooped down the stands at Iverwind Stadium, down the stairs. And, and so we, got, we actually got to watch the last, well, eight to ten minutes of the game from the sideline, which was really cool. I mean, the snow was just pouring down. And the, by then, the Mounties are there with the Grey Cup in hand. And it's just like this, like a magical Canadian moment, right? And, and I'm, watch, I'm down in the, I guess it would be the the southeast corner of Iverwind Stadium standing there, which is near where the Argos locker room door was. And uh, that was sort of my, my position to watch the last part of the game. And the game was still tight. And uh, I was watching from my vantage point, Danny McManus threw an interception. The ball was picked off by Adrian Smith of the Argos. And he raced into the end zone for the touchdown that essentially gave the Argos the claim. It, it clinched the game for them. The, the Eskimos yeah. scored a later touchdown to make it a six-point game. But that gave the Argos a 13-point lead. And when Adrian Smith caught that pass and, and came down to the end zone, he landed in the end zone right in front of me. And it was immediately piled on by, by 11 members of the Argonauts with joy and i was like five feet away and i was so tempted to jump on that pile but that would have been violating every code of journalism so i had to stand there and watch it and just think to myself this is pretty goddamn cool <laughs> i uh it almost seems like the cfl more like any other league it's almost like the, the people that cover it it means just as much much them because they started as fans and it, it it's pretty hard to hide i think <laughs> Well, it is. And, and so, you know, there were times, you know, the odd time when I was in the box and having to cover it, like that great cup in 96. I mean, I, I was, yeah, I had to, I wasn't cheering, right. You don't, there's no cheering yeah. in the press box. And I, I was watching the game and it was an amazing game. I also, I also happened to be in the press box, helping the Canadian press coverage team in the 87 gray cup in, in Vancouver, uh, the Edmonton Toronto game that was won on that last second field goal by Jerry Cork. Uh, and I actually consider that the greatest great cup of all time. It, I, a lot of people rate the 90, 
the 89 game is the best. I think the 87 game was better. I mean, the lead changed hands four or five times in the fourth quarter. You had gigantic plays from Gizmo Williams and Gilda Thrill Fennerty and Doug Tank Landry. And it was just an amazing back and forth game. Damon Allen came off the bench to replace Matt Dunnigan after Dunnigan got hurt and led the Eskimos to victory. And I'll never forget the, the thrill of being in that stadium. I mean, just like every, every one of the 60,000 fans that was there, I was thrilled to be there, to be part of it. Uh, and obviously, I mean, I, was, I had to sort of watch it and marvel at it quietly in the box. I'm not cheering, but I'm thinking to myself, yes, when Guild scores a 75-yard touchdown, right? But uh, and then I got to and then I actually had to go into the Eskimo locker room for that game. And I got to see Gizmo. Steve Armitage was the CBC uh, uh, guy in the room. And uh, back in those days, CBC had those gaudy orange blazers. And and Gizmo insisted on, on Armitage giving him the orange blazer. And, and he put it on, and he, you know, there was, there was a live interview with Gizmo Ware and the CBC Orange Blazer, and I'm right in the background, you know, with my mic, with my uh, 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 tape, tape recorder, capturing that as part of my job, right? So you're right, it's, it's a lot of fun. People love the league. I certainly have loved it for, God, more than 50 years now, and uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun to, to follow it. You know, ups and downs, every team has ups and downs. Uh, my team certainly has downs as well as ups, you know. We, we, mm. we, we, we go years without, without having a a record better than 500 but every time we get to the great cup we win so that's pretty good right how have you felt having the league back after a long long time away it's it's i have to say i'm really enjoying it i i was i wasn't sure what to think of it and i i mean i haven't i didn't the only game i've watched from start to finish was was the toronto calgary game and i thought it was a it was a tremendous game that was even a tremendous production by tsn i thought i've been kind of critical Mm -hmm. of tsn at times over over recent years about sort of mailing it in but i thought they did a great job on that broadcast and uh it's been it's been fun it felt it felt good i mean it's amazing to think it was 630 days or whatever it was since the last time i saw the argos play and then we were just coming off the high of the olympics and watching all those great performances by canadians and it was just the right time for football to come back just needed to go transition right from the olympics into football's back and uh and it feels like it it jumped right back i mean there you know there were some hiccups for a few of the teams and players in in the first weekend and we're probably gonna gonna see some injuries as since nobody had you know preseason games and all that stuff but but yeah it's a blast to have it back and uh i'm feeling pretty good about the argos after what i saw the other night i mean i i'm a big mcleod bethel thompson fan anyway i was i've been a fan since since early in the 2019 season uh but i i think they look like a pretty solid team and i was impressed with the coaching that dinwiddie did uh i'm thinking this is going to be a fun year let's kind of dig into those argos from 30 years ago i'll be Completely honest with you, my fourth birthday was a few weeks after the 1991 Grey Cup, but I re- I watched that game in its entirety for the first time over the weekend to uh, wow. right before talking to you, and it's a bizarre Grey Cup. Like, <laughs> and we'll get to that. But can yeah. you kind of paint the picture, or maybe the financial picture of where the CFL was? In, we'll say even February of 1991, when Bruce McNall, you know, bought the team. Yeah, the league, the league was struggling. I mean, there, you know, it had been, in fact, it had been struggling for about a decade in some ways. Not every, I mean, not every team was struggling for a decade, but there were, there were warning signs going back to 80, 81, when the Alouettes uh, with Nelson Scalbani as the owner had gone crazy on a buying spree. They brought in Vince Ferragamo from the NFL and White Shoes Johnson and James Scott, and they outbid the NFL for a couple of first round draft picks. And, and thought they were going to, you know, turn this into this massive, massive deal. 
And instead they had, they fell on their faces. They, they finished three and 13 and fair gamma was a complete bust. He couldn't, couldn't figure out it. There was, there was always a 12th man on the field and he could never figure out what to do with that, that extra <laughs> defensive back. And he was getting picked off all the time. And then it was got so bad that Montreal had gone from like the, the, the highs of, of the late seventies when, you know, the, when the Olympic stadium was built, uh, you know, Olympics were 76 and the Alouettes moved into, into there in 76 and into 77, you know, that they had a game in, against Toronto in the 77 season, 69,000 people at a regular season game, still the highest attendance ever. Uh, and just four years later, attendance dropped off so badly that by 82, the Alouettes were gone and replaced by the Concords. Uh, and they sort of they limped along for a few years. They came back. I, if, I, if I recall correctly, I can't remember if they came back as the Alouettes in 86 or they were going to come back as the Alouettes in 87. And then they folded on the eve of the season, like literally the night before the season was supposed to start. Winnipeg was supposed to start the season in Montreal. And the night before it was announced, the Alouettes are gone. And Winnipeg, you're playing in Toronto instead. And, and so 87 was the beginning of a, of a pretty dark period for the league. Actually, you can go back to 85. You know, I mean, the, the, the Stampeders almost went out of business in 85. They had it was only a, a, a save our stamps, an SOS campaign in the city of Calgary that, that kept the Stampeders alive. Uh, I got there just after that. That was over. And they were sort of back on decent footing by 86, although not selling out McMahon Stadium. You know, they were and Saskatchewan held they held a telethon in 87 to raise money. You know, they're the, they're the cash machine of the CFL now. But in 87, they needed a telethon to raise funds. So he had all that up. And uh, and then, you know, there were problems going on in the East. Hamilton was owned by David Braley and was it was struggling with attendance. Braley was trying to offload the team. Ottawa was after years of being terrible, was was in a bad state. Um, so and Montreal, of course, was gone since 87. Uh, so all of a sudden in February of 91, Bruce McNall, John Candy and Wayne Gretzky arrive. And it's like, what the hell? You're like, these are like Bruce McNall. We all thought him at the time. We all thought he was a mega rich guy who just had the Midas touch. He bought, bought the LA Kings, somehow got Gretzky to go down to the LA Kings, suddenly turned mm -hmm. LA into a hockey market. The Southern U.S. went for hockey crazy because now you have the star power of Gretzky. And now he's coming along and he's bringing with him two of the biggest stars in the world and, and certainly two of the biggest named Canadians of all time. You know, the greatest hockey player ever, Wayne Gretzky, and the greatest comic actor Canada ever produced in John Candy. John was a mega star, right? He was being paid uh -huh. millions of dollars for movies like Uncle Buck, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And those guys suddenly arrived and they own the Argos. They're like, wow, this is going to be fantastic, right? And, and so that's the way it looked. But meanwhile, the problems with the league were still going on. Ottawa, Rough Riders, the Argos' first game in 91 was played in Ottawa against the Rough Riders. Four weeks later, the Ottawa Rough Riders declared bankruptcy, right? The, the, McNall, Gretzky, and, and Candy are here and the Rough Riders are going bankrupt. That's, that, was the, that was sort of the context of the league at the time. It almost just seems like history is just repeating itself because – we romanticize, at least I do, the Grey Cups of that era. You mentioned the 89 Grey Cup, the 87 Grey Cup. How can a league that exciting with pinball, gizmo, soon to be the rocket, be in such financial peril? But here we have classic Grey Cups. I think of Henry Burris winning it for Ottawa in Toronto. And just a few years later, and I know there is a pandemic, but the league is still financially struggling. It's just like history just repeats and repeats and repeats with the league. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why it's been why it's had a hard time kind of getting firmly established as a as a viable presence in every market, and we can certainly talk about that stuff. But you know, I will tell you one little anecdote because it it, it 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 touches on the, the point you just made. Um, I didn't hear this directly, but I but I, I I the person who told me the story is a, a very good friend of mine, also a journalist who worked for Canadian Press at the time, and he told me that. At the after the, the 87 Grey Cup ended, and as I said, I think that was the greatest Grey Cup of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had to go down to the locker rooms and he happened to be in the elevator going down with Doug Mitchell, who was the president of the Canadian Football or sorry, the commissioner of the Canadian Football League. Uh, and Doug said to him, we really needed that game. Right. Like that was they, they were worried that they were that worried about that, where things were going that they thought, man, we now we suddenly got such a fantastic game. That's going to revive interest It's going to really help. And it did. I mean, it was a great game. And 88 was a fantastic game. And 89, of course, many people think was the greatest game of all time. So you're right. It's it's, it's you know, the, the Canadian Football League uh, has kind of struggled along in spite of itself, in spite of how great a product it normally has been. Uh, I'm, I've argued on, you know, before publicly that I don't think the pro- product has been as entertaining in recent years as it used to be. And I think there's reasons for that as well. Uh, some of them are fixable. Some of them would be a little trickier to fix, uh, but it's still an entertaining product. It's a very football. It's, 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 it's the second best brand of football in the world, or cer- certainly it's the second biggest football league in the world. Uh, and, you know, in, in many people's eyes, it's more entertaining than American football. Um, I think that gap has been closed completely and, and it's possibly been surpassed unfortunately in recent years as i said for many reasons that we could talk about if you'd like but uh, but yeah it's 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 still got some struggles and you know the, the odd thing is now we're struggling in the big markets right it was it's, it's struggling in, in toronto montreal and vancouver particularly toronto uh whereas you know back in 91 30 years ago it's like toronto was seen as the salvation of the league it, bringing in those three guys and the excitement that that generated was seen as Okay, we've now finally turned ourselves into a big deal, um, and for for that year at least, it was it was a really big deal. It was a, it was as big a deal as ever been. When they signed Rocket Ismail in April of '91, it was on the front page of the New York Times and USA Today. You know, and, and they they completely blew ESPN's coverage of the NFL draft to smithereens because ESPN opened the coverage announcing the guy that was going to be the number one pick has blown has gone to Canada. Like it's, you know, what are you, what are you going to do about that? Your star attraction is no longer on. He's off the board already. Well, there's so many things just from watching that 91 Grey Cup and talking about the rocket that I, how could they ever happen now? He was making four and a half million dollars. The salary cap now is just over 5.3 just to put that into perspective. So it was a massive deal in April of 91. He was going to be there for four years. Now, as an Argo fan, or he at least covered the team at that time, did it look like he was worth the cash? Well, he certainly in the year one, in 91, he was a phenomenal player. He, 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 he developed by the end of the 91 season. I think he was the best receiver in Canadian football. And he had, he had not really been much of a receiver in college. He'd been a kick returner primarily. He, he, he caught some passes for Notre Dame and he ran from some, some place from scrimmage for Notre Dame, but he was essentially a weapon on kick returns. Uh, so he had to learn how to become a, a pass receiver. And in Canadian football, of course, passing is, is 75% of the game. Uh, but by the end of the year, he was a dominant receiver. Um, 
and by the end of the year, you know, in a really important late season game against Calgary, uh, he uncorked his first punt return touchdown to win the game with like two minutes left uh, in the Eastern final. He, his punt return touchdown gave the Argos an insurmountable lead in the first quarter, right? They were up 22, nothing in the first quarter. And this, and the touchdown that made it 22, nothing was his amazing punt return. Um, and then of course, in the great cup, he had the, the most famous kickoff return in Canadian football history, the one in, you know, 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, a one-point game, breaks it open with an incredible kickoff return, showed his, his unbelievable speed. I believe he's the fastest player that we've ever seen in Canada, ever. Uh, so he was worth it on the field. The trouble was they weren't paying him $4.5 million to, to, to be the right. best player in the league. They're paying him $4.5 million to be the Wayne Gretzky of the Argonauts and the Wayne Gretzky of Canadian football, meaning to sell it to, you know, to, to make this a much bigger business venture. Uh, and he was not suited for that role. Unfortunately, he was a quiet, shy young man uh, who wanted to stay in the background. Uh, so they didn't get what they paid for off the field. Uh, and that's really why they paid him. I mean, they paid him more money than any player in any form of of gridiron football had ever been paid he made more money than joe montana was making uh he was making 150 percent of the rest of his teammates combined uh you know they were their salary cap was three million bucks and he's making four and a half um so to earn that money he needed to help the argos become a massive business and canadian football to be a business on the upswing and that was asking a hell of a lot of a 21-year-old kid from a small town in Pennsylvania who had been pretty protected when he was at Notre Dame uh, and who really, as I say, he was shy. He was a quiet and shy and very good teammate, but very deferential to his teammates. He, he would tell reporters, go talk to Pinball, talk to Matt, talk to, talk to Chris Gaines. You know, those guys are the guys you should be talking to. Well, McNall needed him to talk to the reporters every day. And that, that wore him down too, right? So, so it was tough. And then by year two, it was, everything had gone sour for him and for the team. And by the end of the year, the second year, he wanted out and they wanted him out. But that we're getting ahead of ourselves there, right? We, maybe we'll get back to that later. So he was liked among his teammates. I, I read a little, little blip it today that he no-showed a meet-the-players breakfast during Grey Cup was he popular in the locker room? He was. You know, I, I interviewed virtually every player on that team who's still alive, uh, as well as Chris Schultz, who I forgot to, fortunately got to interview him before he died. But uh, uh, I asked everybody, what did you think of Rocket? And no one had a bad word to say about him as a teammate. They, some of them, you know, they, they, they realized he wasn't living up to what he was being paid for mm-hmm. off the field. And some of them were pretty blunt and, and, and candid and truthful about that. But they liked him as a teammate. He was a popular teammate. I mean, he had his quirks. He, uh, as, as, as anybody who reads the book will find out, the guy could fall asleep on a dime. Like, he closed his eyes, he's asleep. He slept through team meetings. He missed team meetings sometimes because of being asleep. He slept through that great cup uh, media breakfast. Uh, and so they, they had to indulge it a little bit. And there may have been there may have been a wee bit of resentment at times. But but I had some players say to me that they told their teammates, listen, this guy is our ticket to to success and popularity. And, you know, this is if that's the price we have to pay that he misses a team meeting or he misses a breakfast. 
get on board because he's going to put money in all of our pockets. That's what they thought would happen. And it, you know, it, it worked like that to a certain extent for a little while, but it, it didn't long-term, you know, I mean, it, it just, they, they couldn't, not everybody was going to be making, obviously no one was going to be making the kind of money he was making. And it, it didn't result in raises for everybody, but if it had worked the way they, the, the brass intended it to work, it probably would have raised everybody's salary in the whole league, right? If, if it had mm-hmm. built interest and, and sold more tickets and got TV rights sold in the U.S. the way McNall envisaged, then it would have actually given everybody more money and it would have, it would have been a successful venture. It's hard for me, and I, and I know it is the year of the rocket, but it's hard for me to ignore Matt Dunnigan. Um, and, and I look at the 1990 team that yeah. they lost in, in uh, the East Final to Winnipeg, and I, I just looked at the offense, and one month in particular, September <laughs> of 1990, they had oh, a game yeah. put up 68. They put up 70 in another one. They put up 60. <laughs> like these are insane yeah. numbers. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's video game numbers. They they yeah. averaged fifty seven points a game in a five week span, and <laughs> and it was and a lot of that was with their with their with their second string quarterback who wasn't even with them in camp. I mean, they started the year wow. with Matt Dunnigan, and his backup was John Conjemi, and then Dunnigan got hurt early. Uh, and then Conjemi got hurt and they went down to Tom Porras and he was bad. And then they brought in Ricky Foggy off the practice roster of the BC Lions. The Lions were trying to convert him to a slot back, you know, and you give the Lions credit for being sensible. They had Doug Flutie that year. They figured out right. Doug Flutie is going to be a great quarterback. Ricky, we can convert Ricky to slot back. Mike McCarthy calls him up and says, Hey, you want to come to the Argos? We're going to put you in a quarterback. And she, and then, you know, Dunnigan kept getting hurt. Foggy, had Foggy was unbelievable in 1990. I mean, that offense, I, I, I say in the book, I mean, obviously the 1990 part of the book is it's a, it's, it's part of the lead up to 91. It's a, there's a couple of chapters about what led into 91. And I do, I make the point that I, I believe the 1990 uh, Argonauts, were the greatest offensive machine Canadian football has ever seen. It was, you know, Adam Rita's offense. Don Matthews was the head coach. Rita was the offensive coordinator. Dunnigan was the pulling the trigger, but when he wasn't there, Foggy was pulling the trigger. Uh, they had, they had pinball. Clemens had a, an unbelievable season as the most outstanding player, 3,300 all purpose yards, Daryl K Smith, 20 touchdown receptions, 1800 yards receiving, uh, they had weapons. They had Jeff Boyd. They had Andrew Murray. They had they had guys all over the place, uh, and and they did it with with you know a whole lot of backup quarterbacks at time. In fact, by the end of that year, you mentioned the Eastern Final. They had they were in the in the Eastern Final in Winnipeg, down to their fifth string quarterback. And the game was tied with a minute left and they could have won. They could have gone to the great cup with Tom Porras. They brought Tom Porras back. I mean, after, after they got foggy and Dunnigan got healthy, Porras got jettisoned and then Dunnigan got hurt again. And then the new third stringer, Willie Gillis got hurt. Foggy was hurt. So they had to start John Congemi in the Eastern finals. By then Congemi would have been, I guess, officially the third stringer. Um, but he'd really kind of fallen down the depth chart and definitely way behind Foggy now. Uh, so he starts the game and he, his hand blows up and he can't hold a football. That are down to Tom Porras, who they brought back the week before as an emergency quarterback, and he gets him into a tie. And, you know, if they had, if they'd been able to stop Tom Burgess on a, on an unbelievable scramble up the middle, they probably would have won that game in overtime and gone to the Grey cup. And they probably would have won the Grey cup with their fifth string quarterback. That's how good the offense was. Oh, wow. And and then you add Rocket to the mix in yeah. 1991. So Yeah, just what they need, another weapon, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, no kidding. Paul, I want to ask you about the perception of that Argo team across Canada in 1991, but I got to let you know that Tune Out Today is brought to you by Bessie Box, delivering healthy, naturally raised meat and seafood right to your door. Bessie is a small team in Alberta that delivers local food straight from the farm to you. Choose from Alberta grass-fed and finished ground beef to sustainable Atlantic salmon from B.C., you can order on your schedule, whether it's a one-time order or a regular subscription to your favorite Bessie box. All conveniently flash-frozen and portioned, so you always have healthy meat and seafood ready to cook up a storm. Go to BessieBox.com to order yours now. Plus, Alberta Podcast Network listeners can use the promotion code APN10 to save 10% off your first order. Saving 10% on healthy local meat? I mean, come on, doesn't get much better than that. That's code APN10. Enter it on checkout at BessieBox.com to save 10% off your first order. Back with Paul Woods, the author of The Year of the Rocket, coming out September 1st. I got to ask you, the 91 Argos, were they the villains of the CFL that year? Because I go back and I watch that broadcast and it was clear that crowd was cheering for Wally Buono. Danny Barrett and the Calgary Stampeders. Yeah, there, I don't think there's ever been a great cup where the, where the, where the crowd was so heavily one-sided. I mean, you know, the, I was at the 2012 Great Cup in Toronto and the 100th yeah. Great Cup and the Argos were in it. So, of course, it was a very happy Toronto crowd. But there were still tons of fans cheering against the Argos there. In Calgary, that or in Winnipeg, rather, in 1991, I don't think there were more than maybe a thousand fans cheering for the Argos out of 51,000 people. But so they were the villains. It was interesting though. It's funny. And I, you know, I get into this in the book that, you know, when they went on the road that year, it was like a cert, the circus comes to town, right? It's, it's because candy was on the road with, with every game and, you know, Gretzky was occasionally there, but usually almost always candy was there. And of course the Rockets come into town and Dunnigan and pinball and all these guys. And so they, people, people did every team drew more crowd for the Argos goes than they did for any of the other games and they 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 did perceive they were perceived outside of toronto as the fat cats from toronto who are screwing up the league's financial structure we hate them we hate them we hate them oh look there's john candy and the place goes crazy right they look because john would come come onto the field and the place went bananas john was the most popular guy in the world i think and certainly the most popular guy in canadian football so they were the villains but they had but they had some redeeming qualities and john was one of them and obviously pinball i mean who could hate pinball clemens right uh, but yeah, they, people were mad at them. They, they didn't like the fact that they were, they were trying to buy the gray cup and, and, you know, you, you give a guy four and a half million dollars, you're screwing up the salary structure and all that stuff. And I mean, around the league, the, the teams, the players were jealous, right? Because I mean, all treated them well that first year, they all got these really nice jackets, you know, $350 Melton and leather jet roots jackets customized with their name and number. And, you know, that it, at the same time that was going, on uh robert mims was the star running back for the winnipeg blue bombers he couldn't get a pair of socks from his equipment manager he had to go across the street to eaton's and buy a pair of socks before a practice like so and the, and the bombers you know they, they had to buy they they, had, they could only get a, a soft drink in the in the locker room if they put money and coins into a machine 
and the <laughs> beautiful jackets. And, and one day, you know, John Candy would say to the guys, like, what can I do to make things good for you? And Dan Ferroni kind of offhandedly said, well, we'd love cappuccinos in the, in the locker room. The next day there's a cappuccino machine in the locker room, <laughs> right? Like, so they were getting, they were getting treated well. Somebody yeah. told me a quote that like, we were hearing that in Toronto money was just spilling out of the bathtub. So the players, the, the players wanted to take take them down a peg for sure, and the fans as well. But they were also real happy to have John Candy coming up into the stands and signing footballs and going around on in in the around the field in Edmonton on that little fire truck that they go goes around when the Eskimos scored. You know, good John was on there throwing footballs into the crowd, right? And people were loving it. So, I'd love to talk about the the Grey Cup and everything surrounding it because on the broadcast they weren't hiding the fact that there was a lot of hesitancy about holding a Grey Cup in Winnipeg, whether it be the weather or just the amenities itself. Was there yeah. a concern of having the, the well, big national celebration there? Well, you know, it's interesting. This, this goes, take, takes a story back a couple of years. So uh, in 80, late 88, the Argonauts were bought by a guy named Harry Ornest. He was, uh, he was an Edmontonian by birth who'd grown up, uh, made his fortune uh, on vending machines back when vending machines were a new thing. Uh, he ended up living in Beverly Hills. He ended up owning the St. Louis Blues for three years. He always loved sports. He wanted to, he wanted to be an athlete himself. He got a tryout with the Brooklyn Dodgers when he was a kid. And he actually served as a linesman in, in six or eight NHL games back in the late 40s. But he didn't have a path to being a referee, so he, he gave that dream up. So he bought the Argos from Carlene O'Keefe Brewery in, in late 88. And one of the first things he did was he tried to, to overturn the decision to play the Grey Cup in Winnipeg in 91. Uh, because, of course, by 89, you had you had BC Place, which was a covered dome stadium that had already staged some Grey Cups. And now you had Sky Dome opened in 89, right? And it was a retractable roof, seated 54,000 for football. And according to Harry, why on earth would we ever play a Grey Cup in cold weather when we've got these two fantastic buildings that can get giant crowds? So he tried to work behind the scenes to get to get the governors to change their minds after they'd already awarded the Grey Cup to Winnipeg. Uh, and he failed because, frankly, you know, there was some resentment of this, this interloper coming in from outside. And, and a lot of people around the league liked Cal Murphy and liked some of the bomber executives. And so in the end, they left it in there. And uh, but, yeah, it, it, you know, there was it was a gamble. It was obviously, you know, it's a it's a small city uh you know it's a, it's a good it's a good size city but it's a small by standards of toronto and vancouver and montreal mm -hmm. uh the stadium at that time old winnipeg stadium seated thirty three thousand, but they put in uh 19 000, uh, uh temporary bleachers to get it up to 51 for the game uh and so there was a lot of there were a lot of people that thought like why are you moving it to a small city this has got to be a big city spectacle and as it turned out the winnipeg great cup set the CFL on a different course. They, it was an enormous success financially, and it was an enormous success artistically, despite the, the incredible cold. And it made the league, league realize, we got to move this around. It's got to be in the small cities as well as the big cities. You know, there never would have been a Grey Cup in Regina in 1995. And since then, had there not been a Grey Cup in Winnipeg in 91. It's been back three or four times to Winnipeg since then. It's been to Regina. It's been to Calgary. It's been to Edmonton. It's no longer just a big city thing. And in fact, it doesn't do as well in the big cities. The Grey Cup's buried in Toronto amidst all the other stuff that's going on. Uh, so it, inadvertently, the league found out one of the keys to success is to have, have the thing in smaller uh, places.
places. Uh, and it was all because of Cal Murphy's vision, basically, to get it into his city. Uh, now it was super cold as well, right? And it was, I think, the coldest great cup of all time. Some people have told me they thought that the 80, 84 game in Edmonton might have been colder. And a few people will tell you the 75 game in Calgary might have been colder. But it was friggin' cold in Winnipeg in 91. And Don Whitman on the CBC broadcast, you would have heard, Travis, he kept talking about the, the, how cold it was. And I was told it, you know, that from people living in Winnipeg were screaming at their TV, shut up, Don, because he's from Winnipeg himself, right? And, <laughs> like, why are you talking so much about the friggin' cold, Whitman? But he was telling the truth. He was being a journalist. He was reporting on what was happening. Uh, but it was cold, man. It was it was minus 18. They, they recorded windshield differently in those days. They had it. They, they co- yeah. recorded it by watts. But it was essentially the equivalent to a windshield of like minus 30, which is really friggin' cold. And on a yeah. rock hard artificial turf surface. It looked like they might have might as well have been playing on the sidewalk. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen that. Like you see when you to me, it feels like Grey Cup playoffs when you see the breath coming off the players, and I've never seen it like like that. Like, you, and they were clearly struggling with it. The offense is outside of you know a nice sequence in the fourth quarter and the pick six in the first quarter. Not really much went on, despite you know the thirty six twenty one final. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, the, the Argos actually had, were just terrible on offense. They, they had, they had, they had, I think nine, either seven or I think it's seven first downs that they, they, they tied the record for the fewest first downs by a team in a gray cup. They only had 171 yards, I think of offense. Um, Calgary moved the ball up and down the field pretty effectively. Danny Barrett threw 56 passes, completed more than 30. They ended up with 400 and some odd yards of offense, but they couldn't get it into the end zone. The Argo defense, there was a classic bend but don't break thing, and they and they were very opportunistic. The Argos had three interceptions. Barrett, I think, had only thrown, I believe, I can't remember if it was either three or five interceptions all year long. Uh, it was the, he was the most accurate passer in the league that year his first pass was a, was a pick six uh, and he threw two more interceptions later in the game that were really at important times uh, so that was that game the Argos won the game on defense and special teams it wasn't the offense although Matt Dunning's heroics I mean even though he, he didn't put up a lot of yards his heroism it, I think is the greatest performance by an individual in a great cup ever I was going to ask you about that it, it said that he broke his collarbone in two places in the east final and yep. he's playing the next yep. week, we yeah. will never see that again. Well, and, and you got to remember, I mean, he had come back. He'd been injured three. That was his third injury of the season. He'd, he'd been he'd sat out twice that year. He'd broken. He'd, he'd separated his shoulder with about, I think, seven weeks left in the season out in a game in Calgary. And it was a throwing shoulder. And he finally got back in time to play part of the last regular season game. Uh, and then he started the Eastern final uh, because he was the man and uh, and he and he was off to a good start. And then he and then he broke the collarbone in two places. Uh, and so he spent the entire week in a sling, never threw a pass during practice. Uh, and he played the great cup and he and like it like it's his, his numbers are not great, but he threw the ball deep 10 times. He completed two deep touchdown passes Um and he ran 40, he ran for 45 yards and he was running straight into the, the defenders. I mean, that was Matt, right? He played like a linebacker. He wasn't good. The fact that you watch him and you did, you just watch that broadcast that you watch closely. Anybody would see his right arm was hanging there. Like it just, it didn't look like he could even lift it. 
And he somehow found Daryl K. Smith for a long touchdown pass early in the second half. And then another one to Paul Mazzotti right after Rocket scored the, the kick return touchdown. So it went from a one-point game to a 15-point game in a span of 45 seconds. Unbelievable heroism from the guy who had who had played in three great cups previously. Two of them his team had lost. Um, not necessarily through any fault of his in 86, you know, the, Hamilton was a sack machine. They, they sacked him and Damon Allen the 13 times or something. Uh, and then in 88, he had his team within, within range of the winning touchdown and his pass got deflected at the line of scrimmage and intercepted by Michael Gray. And that lost, that cost the lions their chance. And then in 87, when he started that game against Toronto, he got knocked out on a hellacious hit by Glenn Kulka. Uh, and was concussed and didn't come back in the game. And though the Eskimos won, he never felt part of it. So he was dying to be the guy that led his team from start to finish to a Grey Cup championship and dying to the point where he took a lot of injections to get his arm to the point where he could he could throw without excruciating pain. Uh, he couldn't throw very hard. I mean, you know, I, David Williams told me that in warm-ups, you know, he was there waiting for a pass from Matt and it bounced 10 feet in front of him. And he thought, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Um, but he somehow found the courage and the, and the arm strength to throw the ball deep 10 times. Not all of them were completed. In fact, only two of them were completed, but those two were touchdowns. And I just think it's like, as I say in the book, he went from hero to legend that day. I, I'm wondering if you could say a few things about uh, offensive tackle Chris Schultz. And uh, a lot of CFL fans got to know and love him uh, as a broadcaster as well. But I'm watching that game. He gets knocked out. He takes a knee to the helmet, and Scott Oaks says it on the sideline. Chris Schultz is going to be on the sideline until he regains his senses. Yeah. That would never happen in 2020. Yeah, it, yeah you're absolutely right. And I, I was I was fortunate to interview Chris. I, he was one of the – I think he might have been the first or second player I actually interviewed for the book, and I, I spoke to him three different times. And he, as, as we all know from watching him on TSN, a very analytical, insightful mm-hmm. individual – and he would be the first to say, like, that, that should never have been allowed. And nowadays, of course, it never would be allowed. I mean, they, they even used, you know, he got his bell rung, you know, like it, it, it's yeah. kind of sickening to watch it. And in fact, if you watch that game, like you can you you see he's lying there on days. He's his, his eyes are glassy and Dunnigan yeah. bends over and says, Schultzy, Schultzy, you know, and they actually had wired up Dunnigan with a microphone for this film that the Argos were producing. And and he's talking to Schultzy and Schultzy was like, like not responsive. And, uh, I, you know, I got told some things about, you know, they were asking him questions on the sidelines, like, you know, what, uh, uh, actually, I think you know, I'm thinking I'm confusing with the story about when Rocket got concussed in Calgary, but, but for sure, they, they, they had to make sure Schultz was, was well enough to go back in, but in today's football. It's not even a question. He's oh, in the, mm-hmm. he's in the locker room and he's done for the day. You know, you don't get knocked senseless like that and come back and play. He got back into that game. He sat out maybe three or four series, and then he was back in there, uh, and he was part of it. Um, and by the way, I mean, as I said, he was an incredibly insightful person to interview, not only about that, but about everything. He told me some amazing stories about, about that team and about his teammates uh, and about the league. Um, I was so grateful that I got to talk to him. And as everybody else was, I was so stunned and sad that he uh, passed away way too young uh, this past year. And I also... That game, you have to mention the kick return. You have to mention the beer flying. Well, there were two if you, if you, if you watch. Now, I, I watched an interview. It was with you just about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. that you had found the person that threw the beer. Do they regret it? Do you reveal their identity in the book? Yeah, I don't. I don't reveal his identity. 
Uh, I, I've got to say, I mean, I always preface this by saying that I, I there's no way to corroborate the story. So there's no way right. to prove with certainty that it was this individual. But I believe this is the guy that threw the camp based on all the information that I accumulated through quite a bit of reporting on, in, into this. I believe this individual did it. Uh, what I say in the book and what I said in, in the story, the, the, a, a version of the chapter of the book is already online. I published it back in 2019 to sort of get people's appetites whetted. Uh, he's a He's, a, he's living out in Western Canada and uh, he's uh, he's in his mid 50s and he he does regret it. Like he, he acknowledges that it was a pretty silly, stupid thing to do. He, but he, he gave me a very good explanation. He says, you know, like he he he, they, he he's part of a group of guys that used to go to Bombers games dressed in dressed in their underwear. And they used to <laughs> they used to smuggle beers into the into the stadium, even though you could buy beers by then, they would smuggle yeah. their own beers into the stadium. And uh, he was there, you know, wearing a bra and, and he, had, he had a beer in his bra and he'd been drinking, obviously, you know, he had a few, few pops that day and uh, rockets coming up the sideline right towards him. And in a span of a millisecond, he's thinking they're buying the great cup. There's the ruin in the league. I got uh, a half frozen can of beer in my in my bra. I'm going to throw it. And he threw it and he almost hit him. And then a you know, second seconds later, another one comes out, as you say, Travis, another one comes out of the corner of the end zone. I didn't bother to try to find that person. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those iconic moments that will never be forgotten, right? It's one of the reasons why this story is so amazing that you add all the all these things up with, with Rocket and McNall, yeah. Rusty Candy, you know, at Dunnigan. And then you add in the friggin' beer can, like, right? It was like, and then and, and we went 30 years before we found it. Well, nobody's still going to know the name of the guy, but at least now we sort of know the story behind it and it's one of those legendary stories they'll be replaying that for a long time right it just it just it just added to the to the to the hoopla it's rocket it's the guy that got all the money he scores the biggest touchdown yeah. at the most important time an incredible burst of speed and then here comes this this white projectile out of the uh, out of the, the the stands don whitman thought it was a snowball because of course yeah. tv was low def back in those days but it was it was spinning it's, the snowballs don't spin in foam right so uh, it was a, it was a can of it was a can of uh, of uh, uh ov uh everybody thinks it's coors light because it looked kind of silvery on tv but no the guy told me it was ov and ov was the official beer of the of the of the breakup okay. back then so uh, but yeah it just adds to the legend of the whole piece right well, and the the thing about that broadcast, and the last thing I want to say about it is, you've got Gretzky, McNall, Candy roaming the sidelines, but then the stamps owner was it Larry Rickman? Yep, Larry He's like, Rickman. Yep, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know show up on the sideline and show these guys a little like that will never happen again either. <laughs> yeah. Larry had just, just taken over the team like about a month or two before, and he aspired to be sort of in that league. Right. And he, yeah. as it turned out, he also wasn't, I mean, he, just like McNall, he didn't actually have as much money as we all thought he did. And, uh, but yeah, there was, there was some, there was some gamesmanship going on. There was, there was uh, actually the, the Argos did one thing that very funny uh, before the game. Um, uh, it was the league in those days, had a tradition that you know the, the home uniforms and the road uniforms just rotated between east and west regardless of where the game was yeah. it was supposed to be toronto's turn the east turn to wear its road uniforms that that year and the argos had gone nine and zero at home wearing their blue jerseys 
Uh, and so Grey Cup week, there's a meeting between the teams and the league to talk about all the logistics. And Mike McCarthy, the general manager of the Argo, says, well, we've our, our road jerseys are lost. Like they got they, we, we shipped them out and they're, we think they're in Tokyo right now. And, and, uh, and like you got the Stampeders, you got, you got Rickman and Wally Wano and, and Normie Kwong, who was the, who was the general manager, got them all just into a friggin' lather over this. And meanwhile, <laughs> the, the white jerseys and blue pants were just up in the equipment manager's room all this time. They were never going to, they were always going to wear the white jerseys and the blue pants. And I'm glad they did because I love that look, but, uh, uh, they just, they were, they, the one-upmanship was happening, right? McCarthy played that game very, very effectively. He got, he, he, Larry Rickman wasted a hell of a lot of psychic energy being worried about what the Argos were going to wear that day. John Candy, we lost him in 1994, and he's still beloved in Canada. Was he the most committed of the big three in that little ownership trio? Oh yeah, no, no question. I mean, John, like the Argos have been around for 150 years, almost. They they were owned for the first uh, 85 years by the Argonaut Rowing Club, so it wasn't a traditional owner in the sense that we think of as owners now. But uh, John Candy, by far, was the, own, the the one owner in the history of the Argonauts that actually loved the Argonauts. He mm-hmm. he loved the team. He grew up as an Argo fan. He went to games at Exhibition Stadium. He thought he was going to play for the Argos. He was a he was an offensive lineman at Neil McNeil High School and believed he was going to be an Argo if he hadn't blown out his knee. He was all in. He was he was out on every game that year on the road or at home. He would go to a city b- before the Argos got there and drum up interest by going on every radio station at five wow. o'clock in the morning. Buy tickets, buy tickets so we can get the blackout lifted. Come on, come on, people get out here and watch this. He was totally he, he became the chairman of the league's expansion committee. And he was the chair. He wasn't just a figurehead. He was actually running the meetings and doing stuff. He helped the Rough Riders find a new owner. He helped he, for better or worse. He helped them bring Larry Rickman in as a Calgary Stampeders <laughs> owner. I mean, John, John was determined he was going to help this entire league become successful. Yeah. I mean, McNall was, was in it for other reasons. McNall's long-term goal was he wanted an NFL franchise in Toronto. Uh, but he also thought even if that didn't happen, there's a good chance I can, I can take this undervalued property and turn it into a very successful venture. Uh, Gretzky was just along for the ride, basically. I mean, he, he was, he'd been in business with, with McNall really since 88 when Gretzky was, was obtained by McDowell from the, the Oilers, but they had become business part- partners. They, they bought uh, the Hannes Wagner baseball card for a half a million dollars, the highest amount ever paid for a, a, a sports card back then. They owned racehorses together that raced in big races. Uh, Gretzky basically said, when Bruce tells me to invest in something, I, I take his advice and I do it because Bruce knows what he's talking about. As it turned out, Bruce didn't really know what he was talking about. And there was a whole lot of fraud going on behind the scenes, unbeknownst initially to Wayne and John. Uh, but Wayne was kind of there because it was, you know, it was a good idea. He, he did tell Bruce when Bruce said to him, hey, I, I, this, this guy is trying to sell me the Toronto Argonauts. Do you know anything about that? Wayne said, oh, Bruce, there's only one team worth owning in Canada. It's the Argonauts. He grew up in Brantford. He went to an Argo game as a kid. He remembers seeing Granny Leggins on the defensive line for the Argos. Uh, he knew what Canadian football meant. Uh, so he, he, he gave Bruce the, the high sign to do it. 
but he really wasn't that involved. I mean, he had a hockey career. He, yeah. you know, yeah. he was there for the opening game in, in 91 when all the Hollywood people were there and the Blues Brothers. And he was there in September for a game or two because the Canada Cup was going on and they were playing in Toronto. So he was around. Uh, but once hockey season was underway, Wayne was, you know, he couldn't be involved. He did rip into the, into, he, he, he commented in 92 when, uh, when there was an incident, actually, sorry, in 90, late in the 91 season when Rocket got concussed in Calgary on a very late, dirty hit by a stampeder named Dan Wicklum. Uh, Gretzky had a whole lot to say about that. He said, this guy's your meal ticket. That guy should be out of the league. And you guys got to realize we're paying Rocket a lot of money to help all you guys. So you just better stop. He was the guy that got protected in the NHL, right? Well, you know, it's, it's ironic, actually. The, 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 the night before Rocket got concussed in Calgary, Gretzky got hit from behind in the Canada Cup by Gary Suter of Team USA. Wow. And he ended up missing a big chunk of the beginning of that season and the rest of the Canada Cup because he got a cross check right in the back. Uh, and, uh, but he, had more, he, he was actually madder about what happened to Rocket than he was to himself. So the 92 season, just quickly, they have a losing record. Rocket Rocket goes away. The Argos change hands again. And then we're, we're, we're kind of waiting until the American expansion happens. Yeah. So How did the, it end so fast? Well, you know, what, what, what I get into, I get into this in great detail in the book, and I won't give it all away. But basically, yeah. by the end of the 91 season, the people that were the business the business people running the Argonauts knew that this hadn't gone quite as we had hoped. They, mm-hmm. they had, their attendance had gone up, but they hadn't sold out Skydome, right? They, they did have 50,000 for the Eastern final, but other than that, they only had one crowd more than 40. Uh, and so they, they were banking on filling that building week after week and it didn't happen. Uh, and they, they, they'd spent a lot of money. They bought those jackets and they, they treated the players in a first class way. And, and it was, they weren't getting the revenues to, to make it up. They didn't get the big us TV contract that they thought they would get uh and they'd also got thwarted by the league and they had thought when they bought the team that they were going to be able to sell local broadcast rights themselves so like we'll we'll sell our our home games to city tv in toronto but they didn't realize that the league wanted every argo game on the national package and they were going to make local games available so that that kind of was a miscommunication there wasn't there wasn't a lot of due diligence went into that purchase uh, so by the end of the 91 season, it was already evident to the business folks on that side that we can't, we can't keep doing this. They raised the ticket prices in 92. They were told by their chief operating officer, Brian Cooper, that's a bad idea. This market's not yet ready. We're not entrenched here yet. You throw a ticket price increase at people, it will backfire. Um, and then they, they let Matt Dunnigan walk over money, right? Matt Dunnigan was, was their hero and he was heading into free agency and they wanted to give him a, a contract contingent on games played. He would get paid for the number of games he played because he kept getting hurt. And why would Matt Dunnigan agree to that? Especially when Winnipeg was saying, we're going to give you a guaranteed contract. So Dunnigan leaves. And there goes, there goes the heart and soul of the Argonauts offense. Chris Gaines retires. Chris Gaines was, was their middle linebacker and was the heart and soul of the team and particularly the defense. He retires because his body won't let him play anymore. That all happens. Um, Ricky Foggy was a fantastic quarterback, but he was better suited to be a backup. Uh, he, they gave him the starting job and, and he just wasn't quite the right guy for the starting job to replace Donegan. 
Rocket got hurt a lot. Um, Pinball played the entire 92 season with a, with a terrible, he had a bad case of turf toe that basically made him a, a decoy in the Grey Cup in 91. And it, it lingered through the entire 92 season. He was not the pinball that we, that we remember in 92. He was good, but he wasn't pinball. Uh, so you add all that up and there were some bad feelings. You know, Adam Rita lost his temper a few times and Daryl K. Smith beaked off a few times. Uh, they wanted to build the offense around Rocket because he was their star, and you can't you can't feature one receiver in an offense. It doesn't work that way. So everything went wrong. They ended up firing Adam Rita shortly after Labor Day. They had the game in, in Toronto against Calgary where they lost thirty-one nothing, and Rocket lost his mind and stomped on Danny McVeigh's head. And by the end of the year, they all he wanted out. They wanted him out. They were they were making noises about suing him for breach of contract if he didn't go voluntarily. Uh, they lingered on as the owners until till early 94. They still own the team in 93. Uh, but by then, all the interest was gone. Rocket was gone. Uh, it just it went from it went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows from from Grey Cup glory and, and the greatest season ever to three and 15 two years later. Um, yeah, it was it was it just it was it was like it was one of those dreams that it could only be a dream and it could only live, have it happen once. Right. The year of the rocket. John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, a crooked tycoon in the craziest season in football history. Paul Woods, the author of the book. It's been in the works for over four and a half years. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you can pre-order it like I did and save uh, 20% right through uh, Sutherland House, uh, the publishing company, right? So head to Twitter, go to your Twitter account, go to Sutherland House's Twitter account. You'll find the links there. Thank you so much for joining the podcast to talk about this fascinating era in Canadian football. Well, thank you for having me, Travis. This was a blast. I just, I love talking about it. And I, I do think people that, that, that read the book are going to really enjoy it. It's an unbelievable story. I'm honored to have been able to tell it. I hope I did it justice. I hope the, the players and the executives and everybody involved with the team feels I did it justice. Uh, but yeah, reach out, look at Sutherland House. It's, it, you can order it through Chapters Indigo, Amazon, but if you can go to the publishers, you'll get that discount and uh, it'll be in, on store shelves by September 1st. Thanks again to Paul Woods, the author of The Year of the Rocket, for joining 2 and Out this week. You can pre-order your copy and save 20%. Hit 2andout.ca or check us out on Twitter and you'll get the link right to Sutherland Books. Rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Ty will be back and we'll preview the CFL games on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.